Well, one thing I think we learn about from the scriptures about heaven is that the music is going to be loud in heaven. And uh, we just uh, praise the Lord for our music ministry and for reflecting some of that theology and just uh, songs of praise. And we truly can celebrate these truths because Christ has died in our place and he's risen from the grave. And therefore, we will rise just as Christ has risen. Well, here we are. We are in the fifth and final session. This morning, we are looking at the doctrine of heaven as we have the last four weeks. And I just want to thank you as a church for your faithfulness to the Word of God and for your um, enthusiasm for our future home. It's just been such a blessing to be able to study these things with you and to share these things with you. And I trust that your hearts have been encouraged I trust that you've uh, learned something about heaven that you didn't know before and that in some way uh, your heart has been um, inflamed with a desire to go and to be with Christ for that is so much better than anything that we have here on earth. As we bring our series to a close, I'd like to take a moment to recap all that we've learned so far so that we can Be freshly encouraged by the truths that we've learned about heaven. If you have your bulletin, there is some uh, notes there that you can fill in as we go along that we can get a grasp of the sweep of all that we've learned these last four weeks. We began our series with a basic definition for heaven. We saw that heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ. And we saw in that definition four basic features of heaven. We saw, first of all, that heaven is a resurrected life, that is, eternal life, the essence of which is to know and to love the true and living God. Heaven will be a resurrected life in a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15 says we will be given glorified physical bodies in first fruit conformity with the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. We will dwell on a resurrected earth, a new earth, a real physical environment perfectly suited for our real physical bodies, yet free from the effects of sin and the curse. And we will be with a resurrected Christ because Jesus has said he has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we will be also. From this basic definition of heaven, we then move to consider the time period theologians call the intermediate state or the intermediate heaven. The intermediate state we saw is the time period which follows physical death yet precedes physical resurrection. It's the time period which follows physical death yet precedes physical resurrection. In other words, we looked at the timeline in the future. We saw that there was a gap there. There was a time period which comes after the believer's body is separated from his soul. And yet before the time period where his soul is reunited to his glorified physical body. Theologians call this the intermediate state or the intermediate heaven. We saw that when we think about the intermediate state, we are to think of a person. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. The intermediate state will be a time period of conscious, blessed enjoyment directly in the presence of Christ, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. When we think about the intermediate heaven, we are to think of a portrait. That portrait is paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And we also went through some possibilities about the intermediate state. Uh, Some truths which may not be explicit in Scripture, but are hinted at from various passages such as Revelation 6 and Luke 16. Some possibilities about this state are that we may have physical forms during the intermediate state. We may have awareness of time. We may have awareness of what is going on on the earth. And we actually may have memory of our earthly lives in the intermediate state. From this intermediate state, we then fast-forwarded to our life on the new earth, and we went directly to Revelation chapter 21, where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. We consider the fact that this new earth will be our eternal home. It will be a real earth, just as physical and as tangible as the earth that we live on today and yet free from the effects of sin 
and the curse. And we just did a broad survey of the new earth from Revelation 21 and 22. We saw a physical feature that there will be no more sea on the new earth. There will be a land-based environment unlike the water-based environment that we live on today. We saw a spiritual feature that there will be no more curse. In Genesis 3, God cursed the ground and therefore man lives his present life today in toil and in frustrating work. On the new earth, we can expect to find joyful, productive labor because there will be no more curse. We saw a relational feature. There will be no more separation between us and God. We saw an emotional feature. There will be no more sorrow. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. And lastly, we saw a personal or practical feature that there will be no more chances, no more opportunities to receive the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, what we did is we looked at this new earth and we saw that on this new earth, there is a city and the city has a name. It is the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is an actual physical city which rests on an actual physical earth. And the New Jerusalem is the capital city of the new earth. Now, remember the new earth, it is not a water-based environment. You don't have seas which separate the land masses from each other. You have one unified land mass and you have a capital city which rests on the new earth, which is the capital of the entire earth. And we saw that this city will be our future home. And our goal last week was really to get as acquainted with this city as we are of our own hometown, or our own city. And we went to Revelation 21 and took a tour and took a Thomas guide out of the New Jerusalem and we saw the different dimensions. We saw that this is basically a diamond cube which descends out of heaven with the very glory of God. Its dimensions are 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles up with a total volume of 3,375,000,000 cubic miles. And it is a diamond, and it shines with the very glory of God itself. And around this city is a wall, and with the walls are 12 gates, and there's three gates to the north, three gates to the south, three gates to the east, three gates to the west. And there are angels which guard the gates, and we will go inside and outside of the gates, and this will be our home. It is a city. It is a real, physical city. And it rests on the new earth. A giant diamond cube which would stretch if it was placed on the United States from the Pacific Ocean to the Mississippi River. And that's just the landmass on the ground. It also goes 1,500 miles up. So the picture that we get of the new earth is one unified landmass with one capital city ruling over the entire earth, and that is the capital city of the new Jerusalem. The foundation stones of the city are adorned with every kind of precious stone, jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. And the 12 gates are 12 pearls. And these are just physical descriptions of a physical city. They're as plain and as clear as found in Scripture. And really... I received many responses this week from people who just said, I never knew that there was going to be a city like that in heaven. And I was encouraged by that because really, if you're with us last week, we didn't do anything fancy with the text. We just went through the text and just read what it says. And this is what it says. This is what the city is going to be like. And that was our tour of the new Jerusalem. Well, over the last four weeks, we've come a long way in our study of the doctrine of heaven. I trust that in here is something you haven't learned before and that this teaching has increased your longing for heaven. And last week, I promised you that I would talk about what our lives are going to be like in heaven. And this morning, I want to bring our series to a close by talking about what our lives are going to be like in heaven, not from a practical standpoint, because I think we've covered a lot of that, but really from a conceptual standpoint. And to do that, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 will be our launching point. 
and I want to lay before you the thesis that our eternal future in heaven will be an unending revelation of God's amazing grace. The Bible teaches that our eternal future will be an unending revelation of God's amazing grace. Starting from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, verse 3. Let's start here. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, which given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. I want to lay before you a basic truth here that we learn from this text and what among the many things that Paul teaches us here, Paul makes the basic point that God gets the glory when we get the grace. God gets glory when we get Grace. That is a basic point that Paul makes repeatedly in this text. In this passage, Paul lists the innumerable blessings that have been bestowed on the believer in Jesus Christ. He is describing this massive, unfathomable blessing that has come to our lives by God's amazing grace. And as he does so, he really runs out of breath, as it were. Verses 3 to 14, if you can believe it, in the Greek is actually one run-on sentence. There is no periods in the original language. Paul begins by blessing God in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just finds himself lost in this giant doxology of praise for the salvation that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And basically what he's saying to us in this passage is that God has given us such amazing grace and he just lists these different features of God's grace. That he's chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's adopted us as sons of God in Jesus Christ. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us with His blood. He's given us the forgiveness of our sins. He's revealed to us the mystery of His will. He's given to us inheritance which is undefiled and will not fade away. And He's, on top of all that, He's given to us the very Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who is a pledge of our inheritance. God has just lavished us with grace. And he just starts in his le- as if he just can't stop talking because he's just so amazed at the wonders of God's grace and the riches of His unmerited favor. I think verse 7 sums it up where it says, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Paul pictures the Christian believer as, as it were, drowning in the riches of God's amazing grace. And this whole thing is just one long doxology of praise to the God who has given to us such grace. Now watch this. In the middle of this in giant uh, doxology that Paul is giving praise to God, he gives one phrase three times which really tells us the purpose of all of this and why God has done this for us in Jesus Christ. It's found once in verse 6 where he says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12, he says, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. 
And then in verse 14, he says, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Now, Paul here, what he's doing is he's teaching us a very basic truth. And what he's saying here is that when we receive much grace, God receives much glory. That the ideas of God being glorified and us receiving His grace are not contradictory to each other, they're complementary to each other. That we receive grace and God is glorified in the display of His grace. We become, as it were, trophy cases of God's grace, a demonstration of this infinite attribute of His glorious character. And what He does is He puts His grace on display in our lives in Jesus Christ in such a way that Really, all of creation stands in awe of who God is because they look at God and they say, wow, you are a God of amazing grace. God gets the glory when we get the grace. And the truth is that you will never glorify God until you see yourself as a recipient and not as a giver. You will never glorify God until you see yourself as eternally receiving. I've received everything and I still need to receive. The moment that you start to see yourself as self-sufficient and that I am going to, out of my sufficiency, give to God is the moment you cease to glorify God. Because the truth is that we glorify God when we receive from His sufficiency and we continue to receive for all of eternity. You are a receiver and I am a receiver. And you will always be a receiver. See, this is what the Pharisees couldn't understand. They, they thought that they needed to give to God. They thought that out of my sufficiency, I need to give to God out of my strength. And they came to God with this independent spirit that said, God, look, I have so much to offer you. And Jesus condemned them for their pride. And he said, you know who glorifies God is that is those sinners who come to God and beat on their breasts and say, God, I need to receive forgiveness. I need to receive grace. I need to receive your mercy. I am a receiver, not a giver. We have never been, nor will we ever be, those who have anything worthy to offer God. We, will, we have come as receivers, and we will always be receivers. And this was Jesus' point in Matthew 18, where He said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. What was His point there? He says, Look at a child. You know what a child's like? A child is completely dependent. A child is a receiver. A child can't do anything on his own. A child needs to be fed. He needs to be clothed. He needs to be taken care of. He needs to be protected. A child can't get a job. A child can't go drive a car. A child is always a receiver. Helpless. Totally dependent. And Jesus says, unless you become like this child unless you see yourself as utterly dependent in need of protection and mercy and care, you shall never enter my kingdom. You cannot even be a Christian until you see yourself as a receiver. Now, what I'm trying to point out to you is just this is a basic theological truth that runs through the Scriptures, that God is glorified when we receive grace, when we come to God and, and we are empty and we are helpless and we are dependent and we cry out to God for mercy and we say, God, I have nothing to offer you but my sin and my shame and I need forgiveness and I need redemption and I need adoption and I just need you to pour your grace upon my life. And God, in the person of Jesus Christ, pours out that grace and salvation in our lives. Who gets the glory? Do we receive glory? Absolutely not, because we didn't contribute anything. 
God receives glory because God demonstrates his sufficiency in pouring out the riches of his grace upon our needy lives. And that will always be the message of the Bible. God gets glory when we receive grace. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 that by grace we are saved through faith not of ourselves, that no man should boast, that none of us will be able to say, hey, look, I contributed something to my salvation. Look how good I am. But that for all of eternity, we would point to God and we would say it was all of Him. It was all of His mercy. And I'm just a receiver. Now, Paul has been making this point in Ephesians chapter 1. And he basically has been focused on the past. He's basically been showing us how God has been glorified in our lives and how he has given us grace in the past. In our past election, in our past adoption, in our past redemption, in our past forgiveness, in our past revelation. It's all in the past. Now flip over to Ephesians chapter 2 and Paul's going to make a switch here. You would think that after Ephesians chapter 1, Paul would have said all that there is to say on the subject of God's grace. I mean, really, what more is there to say? How much more grace can God give? I mean, come on. I mean, I would be satisfied, like I shared last week. I'd be satisfied with a doghouse in heaven, really. I mean, just save me from the wrath that is to come. Save me from hell. Just let me have this little shack in heaven and just let me crawl in there and I praise God for all of eternity. And Paul's saying, that's not what salvation is. Salvation is God not only has rescued you from His wrath, but He's poured upon your life grace upon grace and it's all to the praise of His glory. Why? Is it because of you? No, it's because He wanted to glorify Himself and show how sufficient and how awesome and how infinite His grace is so that all of creation would say God is great in the grace that He possesses. So you would think that after chapter 1, Paul would have said all there is to say on the subject of God's grace. But in chapter 2, what Paul does is he makes a switch from the grace we have received in eternity past to the grace we will receive in eternity future. Ephesians 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, here's the key verse, verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul says, oh, brothers, you know, all that grace I've shown you that's in the past, that's not all there is. I mean, you think I'm done. That's just the past. There's a whole category I haven't even talked about yet. And that's the grace that God is going to show you in the future. And you think that God's grace in eternity past is amazing. It is. Wait till you see what He's going to do in eternity future. You see, what is heaven going to be? It is going to be an unending demonstration of God's amazing Grace that will be demonstrated for the ages to come in the successive ages to come. God will progressively put on display in our lives His attribute of grace. And just when we think we have reached the end of this discussion, Paul says, there's more. There's more. Just when we're saying, I can't handle it anymore, Paul, I mean, I mean, golly, I mean, I was just this dumb kid growing up in Southern California. My greatest ambition in life was to star in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I was just this dumb 
kid, I mean, really, just give me a doghouse in heaven, I'll be satisfied. And Paul says, you don't understand grace. God is not miserly with His grace. God doesn't give you just enough. He's, his character is not to just give you just enough to get by. His grace is of such a lavish and generous nature that you not only have been lavished with His grace in the past, you will be lavished with His grace in the future. And Paul's point here is to demonstrate to us, brothers and sisters, that God's grace has no limits. It has no limits. Just when we're saying we can't handle it anymore, Paul says, there's more. There's more. What will our lives be like in heaven? It will be an eternal demonstration of God's amazing grace. Now to dive into this topic, what I need to let you know is that I'm not smart enough to figure this out on my own. Okay, I'm not, I'm not wise enough to figure this stuff out. This is such a meaty topic. What I've done here is I borrowed heavily from the reflections of John Piper on this topic. And I found that John Piper... In his own admission, he would say that he's not smart enough to figure this out on his own. And what he's done is borrowed heavily from the reflections of Jonathan Edwards. And what Jonathan Edwards did is he went to Ephesians 2.7 and he tried to grapple with this whole concept of an eternal demonstration of God's amazing grace. What does that mean? What are the dynamics of that? How can that be expressed in human language? And he dove into that topic, and we preachers, we just, you know, most of us, we're not that smart. We just learn from each other. And so I'm taking from a preacher who's smarter than me, who took from a preacher who's smarter than him, and he was wrestling with Ephesians 2.7. What does this mean? An eternal demonstration of God's amazing grace. And what Edwards came up with is... What I would summarize is three basic points. What will this future demonstration of God's amazing grace be like? And again, these are in your notes if you want to take notes. Number one, the future demonstration of God's amazing grace will be infinite, not terminal. It will be infinite, not terminal. And the reason why we understand that this demonstration will be infinite and not terminal is because God's grace, His attribute is infinite and not terminal. And if you look at the text, Paul tries to put some concrete expression to this infinite nature of God's grace. And he calls it in verse 7, the surpassing riches of God's grace. He likens God's grace to this massive fortune that absolutely surpasses the ability of the mind to conceive, this massive inheritance that's awaiting us in heaven. We understand what Paul is getting at, but we also understand that there reaches a point where human reasoning falls short. You see, even the greatest of human treasures have a limit to them. Even the greatest human treasures have a fixed, definite value that can be calculated, a terminal point in which the cost and the value of that great object reaches an end. Even the greatest of human treasures have a finite value. But... Paul here is trying to describe the indescribable. He is trying to describe an infinite treasure because God is infinite and not terminal. Even billions of dollars in real estate and oil reserves have a fixed terminal value that can be estimated and calculated. 
Astronomers have been trying to find the outer limits of the galaxy for some time now. They still haven't found it yet, but I assure you the galaxy is finite in nature. If you go long enough and travel far enough, you will reach a point where the galaxy reaches an end. But God's grace has no limits because it is infinite and not terminal. It is without end, without limit, without an ending point. We get lost in the immensity of such a concept. We get lost in such words such as the eternal God, the infinite God. Words like without end, without limit, infinite, eternal. We try to draw it up in diagrams. We try to say, well, you know, our lives here are like a fixed line that reaches an end, but eternity is the line that goes all in one direction and it never ends. But even that diagram has a limitation to it because infinity is the concept of not just going in one direction, but in all directions. Without end, without limit, we recognize the finite nature of our minds to grasp such a concept, but what we are talking about here is an infinite value. God is infinite, not terminal, and so His grace is infinite, not terminal. Now, here's the question I want to ask you. Now, just think along with me and reason with me. How long does it take in terms of time, to demonstrate something that is infinite? How long does it take in succession of time to put on display a massive inheritance which is infinitely valuable? If you look at that concept of an infinitely valuable amount of wealth, and how long it takes for that wealth to be distributed in a finite creature's life, you understand that in the succession of ages which are to come, that God can progressively put on display massive amounts of this grace in increasingly progressive ways and yet never reach a point in which the treasure has been exhausted or comes to a terminal end. That it is not terminal. There will never be a point of time in heaven when 10,000 years have gone by, 50,000 of years have gone by, millions of years have gone by, there will never be a terminal point in which God says, that's it. You know, you've seen all there is to see. There's no more grace. I've shown it to you all. It'll just turn out the lights now because there's nothing else to see. It goes on eternally because the massive inheritance that is ours in Christ is infinite in nature. You see, many Christians envision heaven as we receive a fixed inheritance at one moment in time, and then after that, there's nothing left to see. That is not the picture of heaven. Paul pictures the experience of heaven and our lives in heaven as an endless succession of consecutive ages in which God progressively puts His grace on display, yet there never is a moment in that timeline where we say we've received it all or there is a terminal end to this display. God's grace is infinite, not terminal, and so the demonstration of His grace will be infinite, not terminal. Let's look at a second feature of this demonstration. The second feature is this. The future demonstration of God's grace will be progressive, not punctiliar. It will be progressive, not punctiliar. 
I got some comments even before service. People were asking me, is this even a word, um, punctiliar? Um, I actually Googled it. It is a word. And it just, it's a word that refers to a point in time. A punctiliar moment is a moment that is, the concept is a point in time. And what we're saying is that when God's grace is demonstrated in eternity future, it will be progressive, not a moment in time where we receive the massive inheritance of God's grace. What we mean by this point is that heaven will not be an instant of glory followed by an eternity of stasis or sameness. It will not be a punctiliar moment of glory where we receive all the grace that there is ever to receive and then for eternity stay at the same level of grace that we have received at the first. Now, I don't know if any of you are Star Trek fans. I used to be a Star Trek fan. And in Star Trek The Next Generation, there was a character called Q. Some of you might remember that guy. He was part of the Q continuum. And Q had this problem because Q was this immortal being. And he lived forever. But his problem was that though he was eternal or immortal in nature, that his immortality was the experience of sameness. That he never grew and he never progressed and he never learned anything and he never experienced change. He just was the same. And so, although he lived forever, he said, my disease is immortality because my immortal life is the experience of boredom. Because he never changed. And if you follow this show, you know that Q one day, I think he was allowed to end his existence because he didn't want to go on. And many Christians, when they think of heaven, that's what they picture is a Q-like existence. I'm immortal. I'm not going to die. But gee, you know, to be honest, it's awfully boring because I've received everything there is to receive and I never will change. If you've ever thought about heaven in this way, you're not alone. John Piper writes this. He says, Only when I took up Edward's book, The End for Which God Created the World, did I see the remarkable insight that heaven will be a never-ending, never-ever-increasing discovery of more and more of God's glory with a greater and ever greater joy in Him. He said, I never understood this. The concept of progression in heaven. And that we're going to be constantly learning and constantly growing. He writes, quite honestly, as a child, I, John Piper, feared heaven. Never-endingness seemed to me like frozenness. Doesn't it mean that when we get to heaven, we will know all that we are going to know and that the rest of eternity will be never-ending sameness, which strikes the fear of boredom into our hearts. That's the Q factor there. An eternity of stasis is an eternity of boredom. Piper writes that Jonathan Edwards came to this Conclusion that this is not the right view of heaven. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, then I will know fully just as I have been fully known, it does not have to mean that we know all at once all that can be known. Rather, Edward's reasons, God is infinite and wills to reveal Himself to us for the enjoyment of His fullness forever. Yet we are finite and cannot at any time or in any finite duration of time comprehend the limitless, infinite fullness of God's glory. Yet, God wills to lavish this fullness on us for our pleasure in Him. So here's the, here's the concept. We're finite, we can't take it all, yet God wills to put His 
infinite display of grace in our lives. So how is that going to be accomplished? Here's what Piper reasons. Therefore, the implication is that our union with God and the all-satisfying experience of His glory can never be complete. It can never come to a terminal end, but it must be increasing with intimacy and intensity forever and ever. The perfection of heaven is not static, nor do we see at once all there is to see, for the finite cannot take in all of the infinite. It is not our destiny to become God. Therefore, there will always be more for a finite creature to know and enjoy of God. The end of increasing pleasure in God will never come because God is inexhaustible and infinite. A finite creature can never enjoy the glory of an infinite God and ever come to a point in which he's reached the end. Here's the way that Jonathan Edwards put it. I suppose it will not be denied by any that God, in glorifying the saints in heaven with eternal felicity, aims to satisfy his infinite grace or benevolence by the bestowment of a good which is infinitely valuable because eternal. Catch this phrase. He says, Yet there will never come the moment when it can be said that now this infinitely valuable good has been actually bestowed. Translation. Edwards is simply saying this. There will never come a moment in heaven when we will say now We've seen it all. And we'll never get any happier than this. And we'll never grow any more than this. And we'll never understand any more of God's grace than this. Now we've had it all. He says our eternal rising into more and more of God will be a rising hither and rising higher through that infinite duration and not with constantly diminishing, but perhaps an increasing velocity to an infinite height, though there will never be any particular time when it can have been said already to have come to such a height. So he's just trying to wrap his mind around this. We're reaching an infinite height, but we'll never get to the place where we said, ah, we're there. Because the demonstration of God's grace is progressive, not punctiliar. Now here's the application. If heaven is a never-ending demonstration of God's grace, which progressively increases through the ages of time without end and without limit, then the saints experience of joy in the ages to come will also progressively increase through the ages of time without limit. For the more we know of God, the more we will rejoice in God. And yet there will never reach a point in heaven when we have known all that there is to know. And so heaven is the eternal experience of growth in joy. Theologian Sam Storms termed this concept joy's eternal increase. And he's referring to this idea that through the ages of time, I will progress in my joy, I will progress in my satisfaction, I will progress in my pleasure in the glory and the beauty of God. Storms wrote that the happiness of heaven is not like the steady, placid state of the mountain lake where barely a a ripple disturbs the tranquility of its water. 
Heaven is more akin to the surging, swelling waves of the Mississippi at flood stage. Joy's eternal increase. We saw that the demonstration of God's grace in the future will be infinite, not terminal. It will be progressive and not punctiliar. Let me give you a third and final feature. The future demonstration of God's grace will be personal, not dispassionate. It will be personal, not dispassionate. Look once again at verse 7. Paul says, So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness in kindness toward us those two words in kindness refer to a tenderness that exists in the heart of God for his children it refers to a compassion it refers to a sweetness it refers to a tender Mercy of a loving father toward the children that he loves. And what these two words emphasize to us is that this future demonstration of God's grace will not only be infinite, not terminal, it will not only be progressive, but don't lose sight of this. It will be personal. It will be personal. It will be the increasing demonstration of a tender love that our Abba Father has for His children in which He personally reveals to us increasing wonders and joys and revelation in heaven that we may increasingly find our joy and satisfaction in Him. It will be personal. Get lost in the immensity of God's grace. Get lost in the infinite magnitude of heaven and where we are going and all that we have seen and its infinite value and progressive nature. And yet, don't ever get so lost that you forget that this is going to be a personal revelation. Don't ever lose sight of the tender-hearted compassion of your loving Heavenly Father. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we will be called children of God, and such we are. And so in heaven, what we'll experience, we'll experience God's grace in this massive, swelling nature as a giant tidal wave that drowns us and takes us to higher and higher levels of joy. And we'll also experience His grace in the simple embrace of a loving Heavenly Father tenderly revealing to us blessing after blessing, joy after joy, revelation after revelation, without limit and without end. Brothers and sisters, you know what the best part of all this is? When we receive the grace, who gets the glory? God does. In the final book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle, C.S. Lewis paints a beautiful picture of heaven. Early on in the book, Jill and Eustace are traveling on a train and suddenly they're thrust into Narnia. When their adventure is over, the children, having experienced the joys and the wonders of Narnia and the presence of Aslan, the great lion, they're afraid that they'll be sent back to earth again. And in a section called Farewell to Shadowlands, Aslan gives the children some good news. 
There was a real railway accident, said Asin softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. And this is the morning. Then Lewis concludes the story and the series with one of the most magnificent paragraphs in all of literature. He says this, And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. For the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What do we learn in our study of the doctrine of heaven? We've learned that when we die, we go directly into the presence of Christ In a place so beautiful, it can only be called paradise. We've learned that one day we will be resurrected from the grave and placed on a resurrected earth. We will walk the new earth in all its glory. We will enter and exit the gates of the new Jerusalem. And we've learned that for ages to come, we will experience the future demonstration of God's grace. It will be infinite, not terminal. It will be progressive, not punctiliar. It will be personal, not dispassionate. And we have learned that as we receive the grace, that God will receive all the glory. And so with that, we will sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. Let's close our time in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just pause at this point to thank you for all that we have seen about our future home these past five weeks. We confess that we are undeserving. And yet we also confess that that is precisely the point, that you are a God of grace. And you have shown your grace to us in the sending of your Son to die on the cross, to forgive us of our sin. And we look forward to the endless ages to come where you will continue to show us your grace in a way that gives you all the glory. And we do give you all the glory this day. Praise us in Christ's name. Amen.